So Mark chapter 1. And as you turn there or scroll there, we will continue in our new sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. And so let me, let me, as you're turning there or scrolling there, let me ask God for his help. Dear Father, I thank you once again for this opportunity to uh, come together, to be gathered around your word. Um, and we pray, oh God, that you would speak from your word this afternoon. God, that, that none of what is said um, from me uh, is from me, but that it's from you. And we pray, God, that uh, your word, as I pray every week, God, that your word would, would do the work in all of our hearts how you see fit. And so, God, we pray that you will bless it, that you'll be glorified. And as we even think about John the Baptist this, this afternoon, as, as humble as he was, God, may, may uh, I decrease and may you increase this afternoon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So Mark chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 8, reads as follows. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen, family. This is, this is God's word. This is God's word. And if I were to summarize this passage, so this is the main idea of the passage. If I were to summarize it, it may go something like this. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. And John the Baptist prepares for his coming. Jesus is the son of God. And John the Baptist prepares for his coming. Point number one. So I have two points. Point number one. Promises made, and that's verses 1 through 2. We'll look at God promised to send Jesus, and we'll also look at God promised to send John. Then point number two, promises kept. We'll see that in verse 1. We'll also see that in verses uh, 4 through 8. Jesus comes. John comes. All right? So we'll look deeper into that. So point number one, promises made. Point number two, promises kept. Let's look at point number one. So promises made. Promises made. God promised to send Jesus. He promised to send him. Look back at verse one with me. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So last week, if you were with us, as we kicked off uh, this new sermon series through the gospel of Mark, uh, we spent some time breaking down this verse. So just this one verse where we 
uh, kind of uh, camped out last week. And I would encourage you, uh, if you would like, to, to check it out as, as more details were, were shared uh, in that sermon surrounding this verse. Uh, you can check us out on, thanks to Brother Brock, by the way, you can check us out on SoundCloud, you can check us out on Apple Podcasts or Google Play uh, when you can to, to listen more in depth to that sermon. But in summary, in summary, for right now, as we even looked at last week, knowing who Jesus is and knowing him as your personal Savior and Lord is the most important thing in the entire world. So knowing Jesus, knowing who he is, and knowing him, though, not just knowing about him, but knowing him in a salvific sense, in a personal salvation sense, and Lord, is the most important thing in this entire world. Nothing, nothing is more important than this. Your life and my life hinges on whether you know who Jesus really is. And if you actually know him, if you know him. So one question you might have, you may be like, why, why does this matter? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked. It matters because some of us here today uh, may have the wrong idea about Jesus, about who he is. And prior to us knowing who he is in a salvation, salvation sense, we all had the wrong idea about who Jesus was. Um, you may here today have a, a made-up Jesus in your mind that really looks more like you than who Jesus actually said he was. Or he looks and acts more, and this is just one example, he looks and acts more like a genie to you than God. For example, some of you and some that you might know Right? Some people you might know only come to Jesus when you want something, when we want something. You want a nice car. You want a, a banging crib. You want a nice house. You want money. You want a relationship. You want a high-paying job. You want to, to get into the college of your dreams. You want to, to make it uh, in a professional sports sense, whatever that might be. And the list can go on and on and on. These are just some examples, right? The list can go on and on and on. Now, let me say this. None of these things that I mentioned just now, and even some that you might could even uh, think about in your mind, none of these things are essentially bad things. They're not essentially bad things. They're actually good desires. They're good desires. But when good desires become God desires... They become idols. They become idols. So once again, I want you to hear me that none of what I just said or anything that you might could think of are essentially bad desires, good desires. Desire them. But once they go from being good desires to being a God desire, that becomes an idol, something that you are worshiping, something that if you don't have, Right now, it can make and break you, right? And that's what idols do. We all have idols. We all have to cast our idols down and repent of those things and put our worship on Jesus 
where our worship should be, right? Where we should be worshiping and looking to. Some of us, if we're not careful, we'll put God in a lamp, like the genie from Aladdin. We'll, we'll rub that lamp, and we're like, God, give me what I want. Give me what I want. You may be like, I've, I've, I've done this, God. I've served you. I've done this. I deserve this. Give it to me. And in doing that, we become the master like Aladdin, and then God becomes our servant if we're not careful. But family and friends, that's not who Jesus is. That's not who our God is. Sure, he does bless us at times. He does. Sure, he will meet your needs. We pray that, right? We pray, God, please, like, meet our needs. Help us. Make provisions in this area. Those are good prayers. We should always pray that. But we don't come to God for the blessings. We come to him because he is the blesser. We come to, to, we come to him not for the gifts, but we come to him because he's God. Because he's God. And this is who we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus, the biblical Jesus. And the biblical Jesus, as he has said, and as his word tells us, that he is God. He is God. I'm reminded of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So from this passage, so from this passage, uh, as, as the Gospel of John is, a, is another gospel, right? Uh, so the, the author of, of John, he, he presents Jesus here in the first four verses. And what we see here are truths about Jesus' divine nature, him being divine, him being God, right? So we see here in this passage, so John 1, even if you want to turn over there, uh, John 1, 1 through 4, as I just read, it says, he was in the beginning. He was in the beginning. So who was in the beginning? God. God was in the beginning. God is the beginning. God, everything came from him. And it continues on. It says, he was with God. Right? So now, now we're thinking about, so, so when we think about Trinity, right? And Trinity is just a, a word that, that, that is displaying or telling about God's uh, triune nature, meaning that uh, God is has displayed himself in Trinity, uh, in three persons. So God the Father, God the Son, who we're talking about, and God the Holy Spirit. All God, one essence, one being, three distinct persons with three distinct roles in salvation. So as we're thinking about right now, so if you listen in or as you're looking at John 1, says, in the beginning was the word, all right? So in the beginning, 
God, right? The word was with God. Then it says the word was God. And then something that you may already know, but something that is, is really amazing about this in verse 2, it, you see the, the, the word he is personified. So the, the word goes from the word to now being he. He, which is a person, referring to Jesus, he was in the beginning with God. And then not only was he in the beginning with God, not only was he God, but it says in verse 3, all things were made through him. All things were made through him. And then without him was not anything made that was made. Right? So Jesus, as John is putting it and telling us his divine nature, he's God. He's the creator God. Right? Everything came by him and through him. Right? And then verse 4, in him was life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, right? And so we see from this, these four verses that the author John, and even as we're studying the, the gospel of Mark, that, and even Matthew and Luke are presenting Jesus as who he is and who he said he was, and him being God, the creator, God. And everything that was made was made through him, Right? And that he is preeminent, as Colossians 1 tells us. He's preeminent, which means he, he reigns, he rules over everything, right? And so, this is the biblical Jesus. This is, when we think about here at CHCC, this is who we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus, God, right? So, the biblical authors talk about Jesus in the same way that uh, they talked about God because he is God. In fact, the whole point of the Gospel of Mark is to put you up on game that Jesus is God. But he was also man. We talked about this a little more in depth last week. We'll hover over this some here this afternoon. But he was also man, right? So he is God. But the Lord Jesus stooped low. He humbled himself and became man, right? Born, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, taking on flesh, right? Listen to John 1, 14. And so we, we uh, looked at John 1, 1 through 4, but just a few verses later, here's what it says. Here's what John says. He says, and the word became flesh. The word became flesh. So we just, we just talked about the word is God, right? The word was with God. The word is God. And that word is Jesus. He is God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So just a few verses down from what we read in John 1, 1 through 4, John lets us know that Jesus was also man, that he became man. The word became flesh. I mean, just let that, let that sink in for a second. Jesus. In heaven. 
Didn't have to leave his heavenly home. Could have stayed put. It was, it was God's plan to send him. He comes. And he becomes man. He becomes something he was not. He was not a man in heaven until he was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, became a man. He put on flesh. He put on flesh like a Kyrie Irving jersey. He put it on. And he lived on the earth. Why? Why did he do that? Why? Because you and I were in need of a Savior. You and I were in need of a Savior. As you, if you're following along, you're tracking with me, that this first point is that promises were made. Promises were made. God promised a Savior would come. And this Savior is the Lord Jesus. He was promised to come bless you in a way that none of those material things or any other material things or any other thing in this world that you could think of could bless you in the way that it ever could. Jesus comes to be the ultimate blessing, the ultimate giver of life. Y'all with me? All right. Amen. Amen. Number two. So God promised Jesus God promised to send John. Look back with me at verse 2. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So as one scholar puts it, the phrase as it is written, as you see here in verse 2, is a common phrase used by the New Testament authors to cite the Old Testament, right? To, to cite the Old Testament. But let me also, as I was reading this and thinking on this, let me also add how I believe this phrase also speaks to the necessity of the Bible, right? The necessity of the Bible. What I mean by that, as Christians, we believe every word on the pages of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, we believe Every word is God's word. Genesis to Revelation. It's God's word. We also believe that not only that is God's word, but that God's word is true. That his word is true. That he is not a God that can lie. Not a part of his nature. Like us, we can lie. Not God. He's perfect. Doesn't lie. There's no darkness in him. So his word is, is true. That it's infallible. And that's just a fancy word or inerrancy. So infallibility or inerrant just means so infallible, meaning that there are no mistakes, right? Or that it can't be wrong, okay? And inerrant meaning that it's without errors. It's without errors. So just a quick application this afternoon for all of us, no matter where we fall, just a reminder that the Bible can be trusted, that the Bible can be trusted. It has stood the test of time. It is God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16 lets us know that, it, that, that the word, it was breathed out by God, breathed out by him, inspired by him, and that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for everything, 
It's reliable. It's not faulty. It's true. And we can bank on every word that's in this book, in God's word. We can bank on it. So the Bible can be trusted because you know why? The author, although he used frail men to to write the Bible, but the ultimate author of the Bible is God. It's God. He used men, imperfect men, to pen the words of pages on Scripture. But you know what? What God was doing in that, and the reason why it can't be infallible and inerrant, is because God was orchestrating that pen. God didn't just leave them alone and just let them write willy-nilly. No, he was sovereign over that. That's why it can be true. Another reason why it can be true is because God is true, as I just said, right? As I said earlier, because he is true. Because he is good. And we can bank on his character, his track record of proven faithfulness, amen? He has a track record of proven faithfulness. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. And so the Bible can be trusted. With that being said, Mark quotes two prophecies. So prophecies, meaning not fortune-telling. We're not talking fortune-telling. We're talking forth-telling. So prophets of the old, forth-telling the word of God, basically being a mouthpiece for God, God using them to be a mouthpiece of his to proclaim his word to the people. So we see that in verses 2 through 3. So in verse 2, he's quoting from Malachi 3.1, right? It says, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So this is Malachi 3.1, right? In verse 3, Mark is quoting from Isaiah 43. So Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verse 3, it says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight. In the desert, a highway for our God. Now look back with me at verses 2 through 3 of Mark. Look down with me or it may pop back over the screen. I think it's on the screen. Do you see that these are direct, direct quotes from the Old Testament prophets? These are direct quotes. Both foretold the ministry of the Messiah's forerunner. Both prophesying about this one who would come, who would be a forerunner, right, to prepare the way for the Messiah, and that this was a part of God's plan. This was a part of God's plan. This wasn't an, like, on-the-fly decision by God. God had been planning this. He had been planning this. He had promised this, and he had been working out his promise, right, working out his plan. As one scholar puts it, he says, this was the very plan that God had been working out from eternity past. In keeping with that plan, the ancient prophets had predicted the coming of the king's forerunner hundreds of years before he was born. Hundreds of years before he was born. Something to note, as you may have noticed in these uh, two quotes from two different Old Testament prophets, but if you, if you peep the beginning of verse 2, what does it say? It says, 
in your translation, if you're reading the ESV, and I think that's on the screen, it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, right? Catch that? So as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, what I just read for you are two different quotes from two different Old Testament prophets. So Malachi and Isaiah. So with this, as I was reading on this, it's nothing, nothing to worry about. Uh, it's, it's nothing problematic from a scriptural standpoint. Uh, as one scholar tells us, he says, it was not uncommon at that time, so in, in these times, when citing multiple Old Testament prophets to refer to only, uh, sorry, to refer only to the more prominent one and then tuck in the others, right? So, so as you see that, it was not uncommon for the biblical writers to do that, right? That they would, they would uh, cite multiple prophets, but then they would just tuck in the others underneath the more prominent one. And in this case, it being Isaiah. In this case, it being Isaiah the prophet. He continues to say, because these two prophecies fit together so perfectly and both refer to the same person, talking about John, they may have been frequently used together by early Christians. All right? So here's the point. Here's the point. God promised to send John to prepare the way for Jesus. That's what God promised. That's what God was working out. All right? It's like that scene from Coming to America uh, when King Jopha arrives to New York. And if you remember the motorcade, the flowers that were thrown out, and all of that, it was a big deal. King had arrived, right? He had arrived to New York, or, I like this example better, or T'Challa arrives back to Wakanda, right, to take his place as king. And that in and of itself was a whole vibe, a whole vibe. Thinking about the king arriving, right, to take his royal throne. Well, similarly, and even on a, or a better note, a higher note, a more prominent note, Back in the day, official messengers would be sent to, uh, would be sent before the people to prepare the way for the king, right? They would be sent. So official messengers would come, and they were they were sent to prepare the way for the king, to announce his coming, and to get the people ready to receive him, right? That was their job. The officials were messengers, preparing the way for the king, getting people ready to receive him. And this is what God promised John would do, right? As we read in Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 43, this is what God had promised that John would do, and this is what John did. This is what John did, which leads to our second and final point this afternoon, promises kept. Promises kept. So promises made, promises kept. Under that heading, number one, Jesus comes. Jesus comes. As we've already been reading and, and thinking about this afternoon, Jesus comes. This is the best news ever. The best news, the greatest news ever, right? Look back with me at verse 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The best news ever that Jesus came. And do you know why he came? Well, it's right here packed in this verse, this one verse. 
See that word gospel? That word gospel means good news. It's good news. And we even learned this last week as we were studying together. That word beginning uh, means that something new has arrived. Right? You even think about Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, right? Think about John 1 that we looked at last week and even now. What does it say? In the beginning was the word. And then Mark 1 starts out the beginning of the gospel. So that word beginning means that something new is on the scene. An arrival, something, something new has come. And that newness, and what we needed was that Jesus came. So that word, amen, amen. So that, that word good news, that word gospel means good news. But in order for us to appreciate the good news, we have to know the bad news. We have to know the bad news, right? And that bad news is that you and I are sinners. We're sinners. So it starts back that, that God created us in his image, after his likeness, right? And that we are fallen. That's the bad news. We had, we, had, we had it good with God. Our first parents wrecked that for us, Adam and Eve. We had it good with God. We had peace with God. We had shalom in the beginning. They had shalom. And they disobeyed God. They were given a direct command. They disobeyed God. And because of their disobedience, they blew it for all of us. So every human being that's been born since has been born a sinner. A sinner. It's not that we, yeah, we we sin because we're sinners. It's who we are. It's what we've been born in. And because of our sin, because we have missed the mark, God has a standard that none of us can keep or have kept. We have broken his standard. We have broken his commands. And because we have broken his commands, we deserve God's wrath. We deserve his wrath. We are, apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. We are at odds with him, enmity with him. And we deserve God's Righteous wrath due to us because we are sinners. But the good news, that word gospel means, but the good news is that Jesus comes. Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life. A perfect, sinless life. Right? In the ways that Adam or in the ways that we didn't keep God's command, Adam and Eve and we didn't keep God's commands, Jesus kept them perfectly. He never sinned. He never broke God's command in the ways that we have broken God's commands. And so he lived a perfect sinless life in our place. But then he died. He died. Jesus didn't deserve death. We did. All of us did. Because we are the ones who are sinners. Jesus isn't a sinner. But he takes our place. And this is what the Bible calls the great exchange in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he became sin. He became sin. He knew no sin, but in order that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. That Jesus dies in our place. He, he takes our sin on him. He bore our sin in his body on the cross 
and then he dies. This is the same Jesus, right, that I've been talking about from the beginning, who was in heaven with God, who comes, becomes a man, and he lives, and then he dies in our place for our sin. And he's buried in the grave, but then on the third day, he rose. He rose from the dead with all dominion and power and authority, beating death, beating sin, beating Satan, beating all of our enemies. And because of him, and because of what he has done and what he has done alone, we can be granted salvation. We can be forgiven of all of our sin. This is good news now, even when, for, for those of us who are Christian, even when we heard it the first time and received it and responded by faith, it's even good news now because we still need that good news. We still need to believe upon Jesus by faith. And be reminded that he has washed us clean of our sin. That he has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. That's good news this afternoon. And if you're not a Christian, it's good news for you in that you can be forgiven of all of your sins. You can be cleansed this afternoon. You are trying to come to God and clean yourself up when God is like, no, come to my son. Come to my son. He's already done the work for you. Just receive it. Believe it by faith. And I'll grant you life. I'll grant you eternal life. So if you're here this afternoon and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we want you to turn to him. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus by faith and believe on him. You would like to learn more about that, what that means, what it means to follow him? Come see me after the service. It would be my joy to talk with you further about that. So Jesus comes. So promises kept. Jesus comes. Number two, John comes. John comes. So we see that in verses four through eight. And obviously we know John comes before as a forerunner to prepare the way of Jesus. So before Jesus comes on the scene, God planned for John to come and prepare his way. Look back with me at verses 4 through 8. I want to show you five truths about John. Five truths, and I'm out your way. Five truths. So number one, John appeared. John appeared. We see that in verse 4a. It says, John appeared. <laughs> so John appeared as God promised he would. He came. God promised he would, and he did. Once again, we can bank on God's word. What he says comes to pass. He comes through on all of his promises. Trust him. He will never fail you. So John came, but what did he come to do? What did John do when he came? Number two, baptizing and proclaiming. Baptizing and proclaiming. You see that in verse 4b. It says, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So then what is baptism? What is baptism? Well, in short, biblical baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. Right? 
Baptism is an is a outward expression of an inward reality. I like how Bobby Jameson defines it in his book, Understanding Baptism. It's a really small book. And he says this, he says, Baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking him or her off from the world, right? So in that definition, and every word in that definition matters, Bobby uh, distinguishes, so he's, he's saying, so it's the church's act, right, in affirming someone, affirming a believer, him or her, their union with Christ by immersing them in water. And then it's the believer's act, right? The person who's being baptized, publicly committing him or herself to Christ and Christ's people, the church, right? Thereby uniting a believer to the church, marking him or her off from the world. Once again, every definition, every word in that definition matters. So this is what we mean, biblically speaking, when we refer to baptism. When a person is baptized, they are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, right? Meaning, as a person goes under the water, right, they symbolize Jesus' burial. This is symbolic to Jesus' burial, right? And when then they are raised up out of the water, they are symbolizing with Jesus' resurrection. You see this in Romans 6, where Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Right? So what a, what a, what a beautiful picture of the gospel when someone is baptized. Right? As an outward expression of what we hope is happening inwardly. That they have been transformed by the gospel. Now publicly showing identifying with Christ in baptism. So John was baptizing. Now, mind you, Mark, as we were even talking about last week, Mark is writing to, to, to Gentiles. These were folks who weren't Jews, right? They were excluded. They were outsiders. They were not accepted by the Jews, right? The Jews and Gentiles weren't kikiing it up. They weren't cool. So for them to be baptized meant that John was including them spiritually just like the Jews, right? But then also, John was also calling Jews to be baptized. It's a very interesting thing, right? But the Jews at this time were religious folk. They were religious folk of the day. So for John to call them to be baptized meant that they too were on the same level as Gentiles in need of the same spiritual work by God to transform their hearts and their baptisms, them, uh, yeah, identifying with the Lord's work as an expression 
outwardly of what he has done inwardly. Listen to Matthew 3, 7 through 8. Talking about John, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You broad of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So he's talking to religious folk here. Those who are keeping the law, or they think they're keeping the law. They think they're right with God. So he's calling Gentiles and Jews to be baptized, to essentially repent, turn away from their sin, and turn to the one who is to come. And the text says he was baptizing in the wilderness, right? The wilderness here is referring to, as one scholar puts it, a constant reminder of the exodus from Egypt and entrance into the promised land. Right? So, so the wilderness was a, was a reminder of God bringing out the people of God right, into the promised land. But notice that in the text that John was also preaching. right? So it says baptizing and proclaiming. He was also communicating something. He was also sharing something. It says, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So essentially, essentially, here's what John was doing. John was preaching to Jews and Gentiles that they needed to repent of their sins and receive forgiveness. Receive forgiveness that only God could produce and grant. Something to note, to be clear on, is that John's baptism, and even baptism today, doesn't save someone, doesn't save someone, or produce the forgiveness of sins. It was more of an external symbol that one had, had already experienced a true heart change, just like we do today in baptism, right? So, so baptism doesn't save someone. What it does is it, it's, it's what it's doing is it's highlighting and showing off that this person is already saved, right? And we are affirming that as a church, right? And we believe God has affirmed that, right? And so baptism doesn't save, doesn't produce forgiveness of sins. Instead, what it does is it shows off what we hope and pray God has already done in a person's heart, Number three, he was popular. He was popular. This is verse five. It says, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. I mean, just think about that. It says, all the country of Judea and Jerusalem excuse me, all Jerusalem, but all the country, yeah, both, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, to John the Baptist, and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. So multitudes of people were coming to him, Jews and Gentiles, wanting to be baptized by him. He was popular. He had a popular work of ministry. They came and they were confessing their sins. They were seeking to be forgiven. They were seeking to know God. 
and to identify with him as they had, yeah, as they had experienced salvific work in their hearts. They wanted to express that outwardly. Number four, he was unique. He was unique. So we see that in verse six. It says, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. So Brel was out there rocking some Gucci. Uh, any students in the room, I know you all wouldn't be caught rocking no camel's hair. I mean, even the adults in here, we wouldn't be rocking, we wouldn't be caught rocking no camel's hair today. Maybe the way our uh, culture is now, maybe not even the leather belt, the way uh, the culture is moving. And you definitely wouldn't be eating any locusts and wild honey. Maybe, maybe somebody might want to eat some locusts and wild honey. Although I have seen some of that on those cooking shows where some of the cooking shows, they be, what, dipping, like, like crickets and stuff in chocolate and, and eating them. No, no shade to anybody that may do it here if you do. Uh, but not your boy. Not your boy. Um, so John was, was unique, right, in that, in his attire and in what he ate. But in his uniqueness, what he was doing is that in what he wore resembles an Old Testament prophet, Elijah. So it's pointing back to Elijah, an Old Testament prophet. And it says here in verse 8 of 1 Kings, it says, They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So Luke picks this up in his uh, story in talking about John the Baptist being born. He says here, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn their hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So what's significant about this is that John has a similar ministry to Elijah, an Old Testament prophet, calling those to repent, calling those to turn away, and also preparing for the one who was to come, and that being the Lord Jesus. Number five, he was humble. He was humble. Look back with me at verses seven through eight. It says, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John knew he was not the one, but that he was the one to tell others about the one, capital O, Jesus. John's ministry was a ministry of humility, meaning, as some have said before, he didn't think less of himself. He thought of himself less as humility. So he didn't think less of himself. He didn't, woe is me, which woe is us, right before God. But he wasn't, he wasn't like wallowing in guilt or shame or, or um, 
him not being who he would like to be before God and this, that, and the third. Instead, so he wasn't, he wasn't thinking less of himself. He was instead thinking of himself less. Meaning, he wasn't consumed with himself. He wasn't consumed with himself. He was consumed with Jesus and wanting everyone to put their eyes on him. Right? He says this in John 3.30. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. This was John's ministry. He wanted the Lord Jesus to increase. He wanted to decrease. And then he also knew that this baptism wasn't the ultimate baptism. He knew that there was a greater baptism that needed to happen and to come. And that would only come in and through the Lord Jesus. And that baptism would ultimately produce salvation and the securing of the Holy Spirit. So as I close, just as we think about John's ministry, as we think about his ministry being a ministry of humility, may we seek to be like John and be humble, and better yet, may we seek to be like Jesus, who was more humble, perfectly humble. As Philippians 2 tells us, that he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus is the ultimate picture of humility. And so may we seek to be more like him and be humble. May our prayer be, God, make us a humble people, a people dependent upon you, a people who are seeking to look and live more like you. And that all of our ministry, everybody's ministry in this room and every other church that's gathered this morning or even even gathering this evening, every Christian around the whole entire world, we all have the same ministry. And that ministry, you know what that ministry is? It's to say, I am not the one. I am you. I am not the one. But he is the one. He is the one. He is the one I want you to look to. Get your eyes off me. Get your eyes off us. Get your eyes off even circumstances or even things that's happening. And get your eyes on the one. Not to negate the circumstances. Not to negate the challenges. But may we get our eyes on the one. And in our ministries, in our evangelism, in our discipleship, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our school, wherever we are, may we all live in the ministry that God has given us, that we are not the people, we are not the one. There's only one, and his name is Jesus. Look to him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, I pray as we have thought about you, Lord Jesus, who you are and what you've done. And God, you having a plan from eternity past to send the Lord Jesus to be the savior we all need and needed. And to send John who was to prepare his way we thank you, God, that you 
are a God who makes promises, but you are a God who also keeps promises. We praise you, God, that you are a promise keeper and that you kept your word as we know you will and are able to do. You do it all the time. You keep your word. You are a God of your word. Even when we're not men and women of our word, you are a God of your word. We praise you for that, Lord. And I pray that you would continue to use your word to shape us, God, to make us more like Jesus, to make us more humble, to make us more like him, gracious, as even we looked at John 1.14, that, that he is grace and truth. Make us more gracious. Make us more truthful. Make us, make us to be peacemakers like him. Be peacemakers. Jesus is a peacemaker. Help us to be more like peacemakers like he is. Help us to be holy like he is holy. Help us to be forgiving like he is forgiving. We've been forgiven much. Help us to forgive much. And ultimately, Lord, we pray that we would live more like you, look more like you, and be dependent upon you in every area of our lives. Bring us to our knees, Lord. That's humility. Even, even, yeah, even in a, a physical sense, but Lord, in a spiritual sense, bring us to our knees. Help us. If there's any pride, break through it. Any, any, anything in us to say, yo, we got it. We don't, Lord. We need you. Bring us to our knees. Humble us. Make us a humble people, God. Rallied around the cross of other people who are seeking to be humble, broken down, beat up, in need of you. Help us to all be at your feet, Lord, worshiping you, looking to you as our only hope and strength. Not because we're just saying that, Lord, because it's true. We are nothing apart from you. In fact, as John tells us, we can't do anything apart from you. So help us not to trust in our own strength. Help us to rely on your strength. Help us, Lord, as I know a lot of us are experiencing some hard times, hard days. We are tired, Lord. We need rest. We are, yeah, we are filling it in, on all cylinders, Lord. We need relief. Help us to find that relief in you. Help us to know that we can experience relief all the time with you. Help us to also see it. Help us, yeah, help us to also experience it in community. God, that you, one of the ways that you have, have blessed us is the body, the local church. Help us, Lord. Help us to continue to, to be the family that you have called us to be, an imperfect family, imperfect family, who's going to sin against one another, 
who's going to do things, say things, et cetera, et cetera, against one another. Help us, Lord. Because that's what family does. Help us to be that family that you have called us to be. Continue to be that family that you have called us to be. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you are the head of your church, that you are building your church, and that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail. No pandemic can stop the gospel. Satan can't stop the gospel. No one, nothing can stop the gospel. You're building a church. And we thank you, God, that we are a part of your church and that you are building us in you for your glory. We love you, Lord. We know you love us more. Amen.